All right. I'm looking around, and I think some of you are starting to wake up, and I hope so, because we are in part three of the moral of the story. There's five parts in this. If this is your first time with us, don't feel like you're coming right in the middle of the movie and you're missing out because each one of these stories that Jesus tells is a standalone story that has really powerful, powerful teaching built in. Jesus was a master storyteller and a master teacher, and he often connected these stories in a way that uh, touched our hearts and touched our minds and helps us kind of connect with truths that sometimes are very difficult to get a hold of. Today we're looking at a story about two prayers. That's a little unusual, a story about two prayers. In fact, on the surface, we probably, if you've been in church for very long, heard this story, heard it described. Sometimes we get used to hearing it, and we think it's pretty simple to get a hold of these truths. I've done series on Jesus' stories. We call them parables before. I mean, one, one time I almost took most of the year to do a series on parables. And yet, this particular one, I've never taught on because it's one of those really short ones and you don't normally think of them as his story, but this is a powerful one. In fact, it's so powerful that I'm kind of anxious and jittery to get it across well because it is not easy. At first you think, this is an easy one, I got this. I got the moral of this story, but the more you kind of ponder it and chew on it and think about it, the more it really affects the way you think, and it really shifts some things that we're not typically ready to shift. Now, if you've come here today and you're kind of uh, new to the church scene, and maybe you even have a little bit of resistance to uh, religion or religiosity and church going, hey, you've come the right day because Jesus really kind of confronts the religious crowd and gets them to be thinking in terms that they're not comfortable with. And so we jump into a really interesting story. Luke is the one that records this story for us. In Luke chapter 18, we're going to jump right in, and here's what we hear Jesus say. Two men went up to the temple to pray. I find it great that the way the team kind of puts things together, even the communion thought was built around temple themes, and so we've got this very large notion of the center of worship for the uh, people of Judaism to come together. It was huge, a lot of people gathered, and Jesus is just telling a story about two particular people coming to that setting, and he's going to describe their two prayers, their two approaches, and there's going to be a surprise here. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. So he's going to describe the prayer of a Pharisee and the prayer of a tax collector. Now, before we jump into it, if you've read the whole Bible, maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't, that you'll never read about a Pharisee in the Old Testament. And that's because there were no Pharisees in the period of the Old Testament. This is a religious group that developed during the period of time between the end of the last Old Testament book in its writing and before the New Testament period. Now, a little bit of history jogging here. Um, in that period, we have the exile of God's nation because they were disobedient and 
consistently so, prophet hammered them and hammered them and warned them and warned them and said this was going to happen and they still didn't repent and turn back to God and they were exiled, they were nationless and in between the testaments, they return to their land, they rebuild the temple and in between the testaments, you have uh, that kind of uh, revitalization of a moral sense and there is this group called the Pharisees which is a, a religious party, a small group of the mainstream that's trying to call the rest of the nation to let's keep ourselves firm, let's keep ourselves strong, let's make sure that morally we're looking to God. And so they like hold up the law with this incredible meticulous that is calling people to strict obedience to the law because you saw what happened before and so eliminate everything that is going to cause us to come down. All that's pretty good. So the Pharisees were looked to by the masses as the good guys. Jesus flips this in this story. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, this is Jesus speaking, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So, if you think we've already seen the moral of the story, well, we have. There it is, but we're going to dig deeper because it's a hard one to get a hold of. Because Jesus just called the good guy the bad guy, and he called the bad guy the good guy. And it was messing with everybody's categories. Now, I think some people chuckled because they totally agree with the, those Pharisees who always make me feel like I'm the scum on their sandal. And they always think they're so great. And, and maybe the religious crowd is just getting red in the face. And others are going, wow, this is controversial. And so you can see why crowds just gather around Jesus. Jesus is willing to step on toes and step on the, the power brokers of his day, whether it's the political power brokers or the religious power brokers, and usually they were one and the same in their setting. And he didn't care what those people thought when he would confront areas that he knew was wrong. And now he's confronting in a very stark way, and the general population, if you can imagine, if there's hope for a tax collector, then there's hope for me. A little background for a tax collector. What Jesus has done is he's taken the cultural values of the best of the best good guys from their perspective and the worst of the worst bad guys from their perspective. We just got finished looking at the best of the best good guys who are calling the whole nation back to moral purity. And they were all about following the rules. They were so much about following the rules that they made up rules about rules. 
and you make up rules about rules to protect yourself from breaking the God-given rule. So here's a man-made rule that serves as a boundary, another man-made rule that serves as a guardrail, and another man-made rule, so just don't break through the man-made rules and then you won't cross over the God rule. And the problem became that as they created these barriers in rule-keeping, they created a distance from the people. The people were having difficulty following these rules, and the Pharisees would look down their noses at all the people and say, you've got to follow these rules. And they began to view the man-made guardrails, the protections that they're laying out, their interpretations of how to follow God's rules as on the par with God's rules. And Jesus clashed with them so repeatedly. Read any of the biographies about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You're going to see this clash between this sect of Judaism that made rules about rules, about the approach to God. You have to be good enough. You can't be breaking this one or this one or this one. You have to be good enough or judgment's coming down on you. And so this is the story. And then Jesus flips it on its head. Tax collectors, the worst of the worst, were considered the worst of the worst because the Jews no longer have their own sovereignty. They're waiting for Messiah, who is going to be the anointed king, who's going to redeem them and cause them to be world empire again. That's the way they're looking at it. And the tax collectors are the traitors who are extorting them of the money that should only be in their kingdom, pulling their taxes out and paying Rome. So you have Jewish tax collectors who, for the purposes of greed, don't care about their Jewish nationality, their Jewish religiosity, what people think about them in their own family, what people think about them in Judaism. And because they want to get wealthy, they found a path to wealth, and they're taking taxes. And pretty much, you could extort just about as much as you wanted, and anything that's beyond what you got to pay to Rome, you get fat and wealthy. Jesus takes the worst of the worst in the best of the best, in the cultural setting, and then he flips it upside down and says, this Pharisee who stands and prays this way is not justified before God, and this tax collector who prayed with his head down, beating his breast, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner, is justified before God. And so there's confusion in the audience as to what Jesus is saying in this story. So, it's really deep. If you try to figure out, what does it mean to be justified before God? What does it mean to approach God? How do you approach God in such a way that your approach is accepted by God? That's the question. And so point number one is the question, let's say this out loud, what is the right approach to God? One more time. What is the right approach to God? I'm so glad you asked. We're, we're investigating that question with this story. That's what Jesus is getting across to us, and it's confusing to the audience because it's not in the categories they're used to thinking. He's turning on its head a very common category of how to approach God. You got to do this and this and this and be good enough. And then if you do this and this and this and you're good enough, then you're justified before God. And that was the battle cry of the Pharisees 
And Jesus is pulling the carpet right from underneath that and saying, that does not work. Now, it's a great question. If that does not work, how do we approach God? How do we know that we're right with God? That's what Jesus is getting at here. The Apostle John was the youngest apostle, and he wrote a lot of his works, the latest in the series of the apostolic works. He actually gives us a little book on our approach to God. In that little book, he also pulls the rug out from underneath a new stream of thought that was starting to develop, it wasn't fully developed yet, where it says you have to know the right things. You have to be in the know. And if you're in the know, then you're in the group. You have the right knowledge, the right stuff, you know about God's, and so you're accepted with God. He pulls the carpet underneath that one also, and he gives us an assessment to see if you're really in or not. And in one verse, I want to kind of get at this better self-assessment. So this is 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. The Apostle John writes, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Now, if that is our category, and we begin to see Jesus as the Savior who comes to love and demonstrate the love of God and bring the grace and mercy of God, and we see Jesus from that standpoint, instead of the religion guy who says, you got to be good enough, you got to be good enough, here's the rules, here's the rules, here's the rules. If you read Jesus, you read something different than that. He sounds very different than the Pharisees. There is a love here that John says enters into you. You enter into it, and it changes you to the degree that there's literally a shift inside where you don't even have to try real hard, the shift inside is coming from God and you know that you've passed from death to life because we love each other. So, let's review in our story what the Pharisee does when he stands and prays. When the Pharisee stood and prayed, he, the NIV says he stood alone. Now remember, this is a very busy temple setting, Okay? He stood alone and prayed. He's not praying this stuff we just heard about silently in his own mind. Jesus talks in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, don't be like the Pharisees who stand in the public places and pray things like, don't be like them because they're hypocrites. So he's standing alone. He's stepping out from the crowd, praying this stuff out loud, kind of as a self I'm the example here. I'm so glad that I'm not an adulterer. I'm so glad that I'm not an extorter. I'm so glad I'm not like this tax collector. And they're used to this. They're used to thinking this is what we need to be like. Do you get a massive whiff of something's not right here? Where he is judging others and he... I mean, if you compare it with this self-assessment, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. How much love is there when he's looking down his nose at the masses of people who are not living up to the standard that they're trying to meticulously uphold for everybody? There's just this that's coming out of him, okay? So A on your outline, ready for some blanks to fill in? Dead 
religion looks to self and says, I've arrived. If you see what Jesus is doing with this story, you're going to see him depict how this Pharisee's approach is a dead religion. He has not passed from death to life. He has no love for his fellow man. He assesses himself as the one who has arrived, and you need to be like us if you're going to be good enough to accept, for God to accept you. And there's this good enough line that he feels he has crossed very well to stay far away from becoming a sinner. He is good enough because he hasn't broken this guardrail of his and this guardrail of his. He's a meticulous lawkeeper and rule keeper. He keeps the rules about the rules. And you need to too as he looks down at everybody else. In fact, I find it really fascinating that in the King James, here's what we read. If you put that up for us. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I always thought when you pray, you're supposed to pray with God, but he's not talking to God. I think that this is actually a tough way to translate, and most of the modern translations are going to opt for a different way to translate it, but even as you look at the other translation, what we read earlier was he stood off alone. Prayer is not an alone talk. Prayer is not prayer unless you're with God. And here we read, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even as this publican. Now, what I did when I jumped into the story is I didn't give you Luke's um, introductory preparation for why Jesus tells this story. So we're going to back up before the story and back up from verse 10 where we started to verse 9. Here's Luke's introductory comments to explain why Jesus tells this story. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. And then he tells the parable. So the whole point of the parable is to pull the carpet out from underneath those of us who think we have arrived and we are good enough before God and we kind of measure ourselves against other people and we measure them as those who have not yet arrived and we measure ourselves as having arrived. I'm pretty good. And Jesus is telling a story to confront us Now, I say us rather than Pharisees because I believe the more religious you get in your thinking, the more accidentally Pharisee-like you will become. And Jesus confronts this with everything he's got to help us get a hold of a truth that's hard for us to get a hold of as we're busy trying to become better people. And we think we've come to a place where we're better people. But he's saying this whole approach stinks. It'll never work. And he's going to help us understand why. Let's jump into Paul's words in 2 Corinthians when he says this. 2 Corinthians 10, 12. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, They are not wise. Comparison is a stinky strategy for making yourself look good. We know this when other people compare themselves with us and they come off with airs like they're better than us. That's the thing that the church is so often accused of. You think you're better than me. 
of all people, those of us who are following the Lord Jesus Christ should be the last ones to give off the impression that we think we're better than somebody. The last ones. And yet, we have this tendency to slip into accidentally being more like the Pharisee. And we've arrived and we're pretty good and you're not. And Jesus is saying, you've got to quit this comparison. It stinks of hell because you'll never enter in or have acceptance by God or be justified before him with this approach. It cannot and will not and never has and never will work. So we need to get a hold of this and it's not an easy one to get a hold of. So let's remind ourselves of a better self-assessment. Again, in John's work, we read it. I want to just emphasize it right here. 1 John 3.14. We know. How do we know? That we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. So if you stand in prayer, and what's really fascinating, he stood alone in prayer, and then uh, in the story, looking down on others. All right, so let's just pause and think about that. When you stand alone in prayer, looking down on others in your prayer, guess what? You're not praying, because it takes looking up to God to pray. Looking down on others and comparing yourself with others always takes you out of the posture of prayer. Period. And this is a hard one for us to get a hold of. Looking down on others, even if you're not praying, is impossible to have a right relationship with God because God loves those people you are looking down on. This is a hard one for us to settle into because every one of us is an accidental Pharisee. Every one of us can compare and feel pretty good about ourselves in comparison to someone else. And if you're measuring yourself before God by that comparison, I just want you to know from God's perspective, it stinks. It is wrong. It is a wrong self-assessment. You are not yet in the stream of God's life and love because that comparison, by definition, is not love. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, step out of that approach. You have no business comparing yourself horizontally and coming out on top. Just compare yourself as you look into my face. And you will not have an arrogance as you look up before God. Period. So let's review point A and then add point B. A is this dead religion looks to self and says, I've arrived. Look at the comparison now. The way to life looks to God and says, I need mercy. If you're looking into the holiness of God and the magnificence of God and not comparing yourself with others, the only correct way of assessing yourself is to say, I need mercy. Because holiness is holiness and we ain't it. Okay? I need mercy. The law of God, which the Pharisees are busy trying to uphold, it's great to uphold the law of God, but not with their approach. 
They're approaching it as if you can do this. We did it. You can do this. And here's this rule and this rule and this rule. Just follow the way we follow the rules. You can do this. And God says, oh, really? You're not doing so well. (laughs) Just read Matthew 23. And Jesus just blasts away at these whitewashed sepulchers, tombstones that look white and painted on the outside, inside you're full of dead men's bones. It just stinks inside. You make yourself all pretty on the outside, and you're doing this all for appearance, but inside is nothing but rottenness. That's God's assessment. Now, let's make it easy. Let's not go over all 613 laws of the Old Testament. Let's just pick two. I mean, Jesus made it easy. When people asked him, what's the greatest commandments? He just said, all right. Instead of saying, greatest commandments, that's stupid. All commandments from God are equally good. He didn't say that. He says, yeah, the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do these two, and all the rest of the law hangs under it. Got it? Okay, love. Love God, love others. If you got this really down, you know you're in the right stream. You've jumped into the right stream. Your self-assessment is you've passed from death to life, okay? Let's just take that, love others. There's a book that my wife read recently, and she is all excited for me to read it. And it's a two-word title. I haven't read it yet because I had other other things on my list. I plan on getting to it. But man, the two-word title is incredibly, incredibly convicting to me because I read this author's previous book. This author is Bob Goff, and a book that he wrote that I've already read is simply called, a two-word title, Love Does. And now, my wife, Gina, has read his other book, two-word title, and she wants me to read it, and I want to read it too. But I just look at the title, I know what it's about. And I know, I'm going to fail. And the title is, Everybody Always. Oh, crud. This is about love. This is about Christianity. This is about following Jesus. This is about everything and what it means to be a Jesus follower. Book one, love does. It's not just a, you know, self-assessment. Oh, yeah, I'm loving. No, love is an action. Love is what you do. It's how you live, and that's what the whole book is about, filled with great stuff. And now in the next book, everybody always, everybody, really, always, really? So if you just take those two words, How are we doing? Right? If you measure by comparison, you are going to be in trouble. So where do we get the ability to step into the way of life? It's not going to be self. Religiosity is God talk self-help. And when self is the problem, self is not the solution. Just because you make it godish, okay, here's God's rules, here's this, do this, do that, you'll please God. If you just try harder, good luck. Everybody always, let's just pick one rule. Do you love everybody? Do you love everybody always? And this is pass or fail. I fail. Do you fail too? Okay, self-help and the self-acceptance approach before God 
Does not work. God says, that stinks. You have sin in you. That's the problem. That's why I gave you the law, to see it, to look into the mirror and to go, I, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the appropriate response. And Jesus took the bad guy and says, of these two prayers, the bad guy went home justified before God. Now we need to get into this next question. Would you read this out loud for me? Point number two. Ready? So how does this work? How do we pass from death to life? What does it mean to be justified before God? Now I want you to read it like you mean those questions. Ready? Let's do it again. So how does this work? How do we pass from death to life? What does it mean to be justified before God? I'm really glad you asked. Because that's what we need to figure out from this parable. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. And so many people who go to church all across our nation have this wrong. Here's what Jesus said. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is a really, really tough sentence. It's a really tough concept for religious folks to get a hold of. How could it be that the worst of the worst, traitor of all traitors, sinner of all sinners, the one that doesn't care about godliness or religiosity, who should be the guiltiest of all guilty, how is it that he could go home? It doesn't say that he's forgiven and going to heaven. It's talking about going away from that prayer in the temple, justified before God. And that term justified is a huge theologic term. And so we want to spend some time getting a hold of that. On the next screen, I'm just trying to give you what it means theologically. A person who is justified before God has been made acceptable to God by God's gift, by God's judicial decree. Now, this is a huge theological statement that's boiling down everything the Bible says through Paul, through Jesus, and the New Testament word, which is translating the Old Testament word, and is here translated justified. It's always been the acceptance by God is by grace. It's always been God says, if you come to the temple, you're a sinner. You're going to need a sacrifice. There's remission of sin only if a sacrifice takes place. It's only by my mercy. In the old covenant, it was the mercy of the temple. Justified is a relational term, and it's a legal, fiduciary, judgment term. So I want you to picture a gavel. At the end of time, there is a judgment. But it can happen before the end of time where the gavel goes, kaboom, not guilty. And that's what Jesus just said to the tax collector. Kaboom! By God's gift and God's judicial decree, because he humbled himself before God, the offering, the sacrifice, was effective for him, and the offering, the sacrifice, was not effective for the Pharisee. Because he keeps thinking, I'm one of the good guys. I've earned it. And God says, you can't earn it. Only by my favor can I make that judicial decree true for you, and you can enter into a relationship through covenant with holiness only at 
this provision which is outside of yourself. It's not something you can pull off on your own. This provision is outside of yourself. It's a, my gift to you if you humble yourself to receive it. It's always been that way, and the Pharisees got it all wrong. And so to expand on this a little bit more, here's an expansion of the definition. Our sin is atoned for by mercy, and new life is given by grace. Christ's voluntary sacrificial death is enough to pay everyone's penalty through God's mercy. And his resurrection is enough to give us his life by grace when we unite with him by faith. Now this Pharisee and this tax collector, this is true, but in the old covenant relational system through the temple sacrifice. Jesus came to fulfill that so that that is effective. It's all about Jesus and connecting with Jesus. Those people pre-Jesus connected with Jesus through the Old Testament sacrifice were snapshots about what Jesus was going to do once and for all. Once Jesus did it, the only way to have acceptance before a holy God is by God's gift and God's judicial decree. You want to enter into relationship with me? I'm so holy. The only way this will be possible is by my gift of my son and the mercy you cry out for And if you receive it, what he did is enough for you. And folks, we can walk away forgiven and justified before God by decree. Instead of being alienated, we can be united with God by faith because of what Jesus has done. We're going to kind of take, I'm going to go over, but this is so worth it. Paul said, this, and it slaps us in the face. He's writing to his protege, Timothy. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. We all knew that. But then look at his self-assessment. This is late in Paul's life. He's the hero of the faith. He wrote 13 of the New Testament letters. He is the one that helps us understand all of this. He started all the churches throughout all Europe. He is like the conduit through the Grace of God is flowing in a, in a movement that's flowing in. Here's his self-assessment. He says, of whom I am the worst. I wanted him to say, I was the worst, because he was bad. He was killing Christians, like the Pharisees, thinking he had it. But he continues, even after years and years of service, to self-assess in a way where he can honestly say, I am the worst. How could that be? I don't like this. But here's how I'm putting it together for you. The moral of the story now is going to go way beyond what you think it is. Rather than seeing ourselves as better than other sinners, we, can we see ourselves as the sinner Christ died for? He died for you. In other words, your sin put him there. You still sin. There's still sin in you. Your sin put him there. An accurate self-assessment always measures by this grace what it costs to save you, what it costs to save you, what it costs to give you mercy, not by comparison, and it moves us to ask for more grace. There's never a time where we don't need more grace. So we come to him every day. God, have mercy upon me. 
I need more grace. Let's finish with this prayer. I'm going to have you read it quietly first. And then if you're willing to pray it, this is a lot more wordy than God. I'm, I'm a sinner. I need mercy. Okay, so read this. Let's stand together. If you're willing to confess this out loud because you want to be justified before God by his gift, by his mercy, we're just going to admit we need to humble ourselves and ask for mercy. Would you read this with me? But you have to engage your faith to make it yours. Let's pray it together. Ready? Dear God, I humble myself before you. I'm sorry for the way I compare myself with others and judge wrongly. I tend to think about how far off they are and how I've arrived, but I have not. I do not have what it takes to love everybody always. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you for your grace and mercy, loving me enough to send rescuing love and life that transfers me from death to life. Please give me your love flowing through me, demonstrating that I have passed from death to life, loving you and others, because you first loved me. In Jesus' name, amen.